This episode of The Candid Frame is supported by Fujifilm's new integration with Frame.io, Camera to Cloud. A new integration between Fujifilm and Frame.io allows transferring images or video to the web directly from your Fujifilm camera using C2C technology. Find out more by visiting fujifilm-x.com and click Camera to Cloud. How do you photograph a city that has been photographed by countless photographers? Think about New York, Paris, Los Angeles, or, or London. There are likely iconic images that immediately came to mind. As a photographer, it can be intimidating to think how you might photograph these places differently, uniquely. Jason Langer took on the challenge by choosing to photograph Berlin from a very personal place. His Jewish heritage and the fate of his family during Hitler's reign in Germany was the starting point. His complex feelings and thoughts about the place and its history made his photographic journey a very personal one that's manifested in his latest book, Berlin. I hope that the work and the conversation remind you that it's your own uniqueness that can make your photography exceptional. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Hello, good evening. My name is Victor Ha uh, with Fujifilm North America Corporation, and my title is the Vice President of Electronic Imaging and Optical Devices Divisions. Well, Victor, welcome to the show, uh, to, to you and your mustache. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people already listening to this and will not understand, but anyone who knows Victor will. Um, yeah, you reached out because you wanted to share an event that's coming up with uh, Fujifilm up in the uh, Northwest. And, uh, and for people who don't know, I am a Fujifilm ex-photographer. And usually I uh, don't promote things on, 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 on the show, but I thought this was a really cool event that was coming up. And I thought the people that are up there in that part of the world might be interested. So, Victor, tell us exactly what's going to be happening. Well, the event's called Create With Us. It's in Seattle. It's happening on August 19th. And it's, I think, for us, a celebration of photography. It's going to allow us to join in with everyone else as they celebrate World Photography Day and give us an opportunity to uh, collect with our community in Seattle at Fremont Studios, um, which is a really cool production facility uh, in the, uh, the Pac Northwest. And it's going to be a collection of workshops, seminars, networking events. I think we're going to even have, um, you know, a few giveaways, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think what we learned last year at our event in New York was that there's a massive appetite in the photo community, um, just in the image-making community alone, for events like this. And I think um, what we do differently with this style of event is we bring uh, our community. And I think our community is that, that additional flavor that, that gets peppered in to an event like this because um, we have a lot of passionate creatives. And uh, when we gather as, as a community and as a, as, as a group of people, I think there's a lot of fun stuff and exciting conversations that happen. Um, one of the things that we do kind of stress about this event is that while it's supported uh, and made possible at Fujifilm, um, it's not a Fujifilm exclusive event. 
And I, I think especially on World Photography Day, it's really important for us to, to go out with the message first that it's, it's an image making event that's, you know, sponsored and supported by Fujifilm and a host of other, other great partners, you know? Um, and I think that, that if we kind of just think about it that way, it, it, it hopefully will open the doors for a lot of other image makers to, to come in and, and join us on that day as well. So what are, what are the variety of events that are going to be happening on that day? So on that day, what we're going to be doing is um, starting off with um, photo walks and, you know, we're going to have a, a, a an ASC member who's a part of the American Society of Cinematographers um, doing the platform presentation. Um, and I think that there's going to be, you know, uh, a lot of other contributions from our photographic community too. And if you, uh, uh, are curious in, in, in learning who those folks are and, and learning more about the events, I actually really encourage you to go to our website, www.fujifilm-x.com. And right when you get there, you should see uh, a banner for Create With Us, the, uh, the, the, the landing page. And you can read up on all of the you know, specific details and, and events that are, that are happening. Um, I think the cool thing that we're trying to do is really create opportunities for networking. Um, I've found that, you know, in my career as a, uh, as a, someone who's been in this, in this industry for their entire life, um, I got a lot of knowledge from people that I met at events over and over and over again. And I had the, the, the fortunate privilege of being able to work for a company that, that traveled me around the country um, to different trade shows and different events, you know, when I was in my early twenties, and then as a byproduct of that, those relationships that that I had and started to develop kind of just grew as I got older. And I and I think one of the things that we noticed um, was that a lot of these events don't really give a give an opportunity for people to network and to to really come with the explicit purpose of getting to know each other, with the explicit purpose of having conversations. You know, we've invited two of our dealers to come participate that are in Seattle. So Blazers camera will be there. Kenmore camera will be there. Um, and, and, and really have leaned on our community of creatives that are on the West coast and specifically in the Pacific Northwest to, to join us and to kind of help bring um, a bunch of other photographers together. You know, um, I think to be, get more specific, there's going to be um, individuals that are very familiar and local to Seattle. Um, but we're, we're bringing in other folks too. Like we've got folks coming in from as far away as uh, New York or even, even in the middle of the country too. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it's, it's a great opportunity for, um, us to really drive conversations about image making and, and be able to, to focus on how we tell stories of images. And I know that you're really focused on, um, kind of helping others do that too, is to, to really slow down and think about the images that they're making and, yeah, I, I think if we're able to, to kind of accomplish that mission at this event, I think we'd be successful. I think, I think it's a great idea because I, I think that photographers t- tend to be very solitary, right? Yeah. And yes, the internet has sort of allowed you to connect with people all over the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's um, an, a, a level of interaction that really sort of encourages people to be creative and to collaborate 
in ways that really help people to build up not only themselves but 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 others. Um, you know, there are a lot of events where people can go to you know check out equipment, but that's sort of like mm-hmm. sort of a dead end. You know, you can go to a convention right. or something like that, and you get to handle the equipment and all that other stuff. And but this this sounds much more interesting. Since you had the experience in New York, and if someone is interesting in attending, what do you, how do you think they need to prepare for the event in order to make the most of it? You know, as as sort of a networking opportunity, whether they're like just getting started or whether or not they're you know working professionals. I think anyone who's um, who know who's listening to this podcast who knows what it's like to come to an event that that we do, you know, in Brooklyn or in, in, in the city um, is if you're going to come to an event like this and you're looking to meet people, make sure you got a business card. It's so weird. It's so weird mm-hmm. to, to think that that's the one thing I'm telling people to, to prepare is I've now, I can show you, and I used to do this when I was younger. I've got a stack of cards here, right? I've got a yeah. stack of cards here from the three events that we have done at ne- as networking events here in New York. And the difference between having a stack of cards like this versus someone tapping your phone or you following someone on Instagram or you know doing all these things is at some point, I'm going to end up looking through these cards and I'm going to get a, a memory job on who these folks are. And then what's going to be different about having these cards on my desk is the cards that have their title or have their jobs or have what they do if they're a cinematographer or a photographer or a writer or a director, um, they're the first ones I go through because I know they've been to our events. Mm-hmm. So at least I know they know who we are. And so um, it's become for me a good reminder that that's the first thing I do. It's on my desk. It's, I look at it every day as opposed to my phone. I now avoid my phone <laughs> because it's always going off. So I always got a notification or, you know, the, the amount of, messages and emails and you know things that i get that are that are vying for my attention um it's really hard to to stay focused and it's really hard to maintain um a level of uh intentionality mm-hmm. with the work that i'm doing right and so oftentimes i'll just put my phone and do not disturb just so i can get work done um and then in in if i'm waiting for a call to start or whatever it is you know i'll pick up some of these cards and go oh, okay and i'll start to organize them um, and make sure that I've got them in different piles so that I can I can either move them to someone on the team to, to follow up with or keep them in, in my in my short stack so that I can actually look at them and, and make sure I have references for them later on. You know, it's it's really important. And I, I think I've given out at this point in life tens of thousands of business cards. Um, I can honestly attest that it's only ever taken one business card to change my life. Oh. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. really important. One business card. You know, so uh, you will give out many cards. You will probably get single digit contacts out of them. I can, I can, I can tell you that when, when people do have your card and they call you, it, it, it does change things. Yeah. Sure. And I, I do, I don't do anything elaborate. I use Moo cards. I've been using them for God knows yeah. how long. And, you know, I just have something yeah. with the, with the show's logo, my, your name, email, and my Instagram handle, and that's it. And when I'm run out of them, yeah. I just order them all over again. I just yeah. keep it very, very simple. So yeah, it's um, really, really easy, simple, 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 simple. And then it, it's something that is so easy. Just I can I can remember pulling cards out of my pocket, you know, a couple of days after an event or before I do laundry or whatever it is, 
And it's just that second opportunity where I'm like, oh, hey, ah, I remember this conversation. Cool. I should, I should follow up or I, I need to put them, you know, into, in, in, into the cycle of, of getting, getting followed up on, you know? So it's, it's important. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you're going to have a, a cinematographer there and you're obviously going to mm-hmm. have, you know, presentations and, um, uh, and activities that are going to revolve around photography and, and, you know, video. And especially mm-hmm. with the new camera, that's really sort of geared for people to be sort of creatives, whether they're producing stuff for YouTube or whatever they're doing. But yeah, one of the things is you can go to events like like, like that, learn it, and then it goes nowhere. So Correct. right because it's not applied. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what are you going to suggest for people who attend if they do learn something, whether it's about learning how to capture video with their cameras or or or, or and, you know, I'm not sure exactly what's going to be planned for, but whatever they, they, they learn there, what's what's the important next step after they're done? So that's what I love about this event. Last year when we did this event, we, we kind of had a, um, a a flowing schedule, and I think we missed, we missed some opportunities to give people a chance to learn something and then go apply it in a photo walk or learn something and go apply it in a, in a conversation or a networking conversation or learn something and then go – Go have some hands-on with a, a loaner camera or um, just by talking to a, a, a person at the camera bar. So I, I think what we're going to want anyone who comes to this event is to really look at some of the opportunities for photo walks, look at some of the opportunities for um, where you can engage with other photographers that, that work with us at Fujifilm. But then also, you know, we've got some pretty talented photographers in our own right on the Fujifilm staff. And they know the cameras, and they, they know photography, they know, they know image making. And, and I think a lot of times, um, some of the, the conversations that you can have with, um, with a person who's on the technical side of our team, uh, you can talk to them about lighting, you can talk to them about you know, how different accessories work in with this company. And then also, because we've got a lot of partners that have also opted to, to come to the event and help out, you know, Frame.io will be there, and you can learn about their stuff from Camera to Cloud. Um, Atomos will be there and Manlight Creative Solutions, um, which is also, you know, small HD, Teradek and Winning Camera. So you'll see like a collection of brands that are going to be there to support the event. And I, I think that in having other manufacturers there, we're creating a really good ecosystem for someone to come in, learn a technique or learn a skill, and then maybe talk to some other manufacturers about um, how that skill either applies to their product or how they might use that product to learn about other skills. So how do people um, sign up? Are there any costs involved? Uh, it's free to sign up. Um, just all I got to do is go to the website and uh, it's a, if you go to www.fujifilm-x.com, um, it's the top page, top of the page, if you can't miss it. Just make sure that you're on the U S side of the website. Cause sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're uh, close to the border or, or different or, or on a VPN or whatever it is, you might miss it. But, just make sure you're on the U.S. part of the website, and you should see it right at the top of the page. Um, if you click, you can uh, RSVP, and it's a free RSVP. Um, you just need to sign up, and you'll get a confirmation. And then when you show up on the day, just check in. Um, I think I think there's some things that happen earlier. You know, like there's like swag, for example. So if you're a swaghead like some of us, um, you're going to want to show up early in the day <laughs> so we can pick up some of the, the cool things that we're going to make. But other than that, you know, I think uh, there's um, opportunities for everyone to be able to get 
a great experience, even if they show up later on. Oh, Victor, thanks for sharing this with, with my audience and uh, for your time. It's always good to see you, brother. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to, great to catch up, and I hope I see you soon. Well, good morning. Good morning. And you're in Portland? Is it, you're up north I'm in Portland, but I'm also a, I'm a West Coast person. I grew up in L.A., and then my, uh, my parents divorced, and my mother took my two brothers and I to live on a kibbutz in the 70s. And then I moved to Oregon, and then uh, went to University of Oregon to study photography, and then went down to California for nearly 20 years, seven years of that I worked with Michael Kenna. But as you were saying, you know, when you were very young, your parents got di- divorced and you moved to Israel to live in a, on a kibbutz. And that's, you know, that age is a very formative time. And, uh, I, and I know that you've said in the past that that was um, sort of a, a pivotal time in your development. But I'd like to understand a little more in terms of how that experience came to to shape you. Not just as a photographer, but how you see the world. Well, we're talking about divorce, (laughs) right? We're talking about Mm -hmm. when your parents divorce in this very formative time. And, uh, and, and you have, you have to sort of, well, I think my oldest brother took the, the greatest brunt having to be the de facto oldest man in the household. He was two and a half years older than me. I'm the middle but I would say taking that uh, that shock and then moving to a foreign country and then learning a whole new language and dropping the old language and getting thrown in with other kids. So in the uh, my mother um, wanted to get back to her Jewish roots in 1973 when getting divorced with my father and she got uh, sponsorship from a local temple to be well, sort of on the, on one of the tail ends of the uh, immigration to Israel from Americans. And we were part of that immigration. And as a kid during that time, they were children's houses so you really spent all of your time with other kids your age. I was separated from my two brothers because we were in different age groups. And in the children's houses, you learn, you eat, you play, you do chores, you shower, you do everything with all the other kids, and you see your parents for three hours a night. And then you go mm, back and you sleep wow. with the rest of the kids again. So it's four kids to a room, as I remember. Uh, You know, the biggest impression that I had on me was that sense of freedom, being cut loose, seeing naked girls for the first time, because it was a communal social situation, um, and learning who I was uh, as a Jewish person as well. So one one of the things that made a deep impression on me was visiting the Holocaust Memorial on the kibbutz every Yom HaShoah, every Holocaust Memorial Day. And we're talking 1974 to 1977. So that had a tremendous influence on me. And then when I started photographing in Berlin, my sense of photographing from a Jewish perspective 
really started to come through. My photographs of Berlin were somber, to say the least. Were the other the other kids and the other families? How, how many of them were from uh, were transplants from other parts of the world, and how much? How many of them were from from Israel? Good question. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the way that it is now is many of the kibbutzim are gone, and so they act collectively. So they bring in a lot of kids from surrounding cities uh, to go to school there. And I think also a lot of the kibbutzim also share kids and share work. So I think it's a different scene than it was back then. But um, there were a lot of Americans, and I would imagine bringing their, their kids as well. I just don't know specifically. It's really interesting because you, you're coming fresh from you know, your parents' divorce, which is dramatic, I think, regardless of how old you are. My parents got divorced and I was like 17 or 18 and it was, it was devastating then. So I can only imagine when you're even younger. But it, you just said that when you were there, you enjoyed sort of the, the experience of, of freedom. But there's also like an additional detachment that's happening between you and your mother from the structured household that you had back back in the states um so i'm just trying to get a sort of grasp in terms of yes it gave you a bunch of freedom but how did how did it shape your processing of of what your family was and was now becoming i think my mother had a really hard time she never learned the language she, I think, gravitated towards the other Americans that were there and never really assimilated. And she ended up marrying an American man who was a Vietnam vet um, who had some mental and emotional problems and also took a belt and a wooden spoon to us kids. Hmm. So it was probably a mixed experience that we didn't see much of our mother, and at the same time, we could still have a more or less normal childhood by being with the other kids pretty much all day long. So it was a mixed experience. And then coming back into, I don't know if you remember, what 1977 was like in the United States. I mean, that's a, that was a major year, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the height of disco, punk, Star Wars, the energy crisis, right? There was a lot going on at that time. And, and coming back as a kid, I had to relearn English. So when I was in mm -hmm. Israel, I dropped all of my English and spoke Hebrew within a couple months and then was still young enough to do the rest, uh, to, to come back and, and do the opposite. So when I was 11, or so when I came back, I had to learn English again by reading Dick and Jane books. So that was an odd one, yeah. odd way to grow up. There seems to be like in, in, when I look at your your work, you know, you work a lot in black and white and working with shadows. But one of the sort of senses that I get is is a sense of disconnectedness, and I'm wondering how much of that is sort of associated with you know, this disconnection of family, of, of, you know, of 
having a place that you can claim as your own in terms of a home, in terms of a country, in terms of a culture and all that. And it seems, and, and let me know if I'm kind of off the mark, but it seems like those life experiences created this sort of sense of disconnection or maybe even the desire to connect to something. And that somehow that's, that's related somehow to the, the work that you've created. That's so astute. I mean, if you were to encapsulate all of my work, it really is about connection. There's something that connected me to being in a dark room, being alone, doing the work alone, and that everything that we do as photographers is about how light is hitting the darkness. What kind of form and shape is being created when light hits you know, silver halide crystals or a sensor. But more than that, my very first project was about existing in general. And if you really look at all of my work, you see that there is sort of an existential question about all of them. My first body of work was called Shadow. And it was how this was all pre-Photoshop in the mid-90s how to create photographs in the real world of an anonymous human shape going through the trials and tribulations of having a human body being on earth. And what I ended up doing is connecting with a dancer from the Oakland ballet and dressing him in all black and putting him in these different treacherous scenarios and trying to create an illusion of a black cutout or just a general black human figure shape in all of these different things that we experience as people. And after then, in my Secret City work and in Possession, it's really about a search for an identity. Secret City, most of those photographs are a lone male figure in the distance in the city. And at the time, I was really thinking that that was kind of a search for father, because mm. my father was absent. And my hero, my idol, when I was growing up was Humphrey Bogart. So Bogey, as you know, was always a, a kind of stone cold, emotionless, but the heart of gold, whether he's playing a criminal or a romantic figure. And he was the guy that I sort of looked up to. I had many posters and cutouts of Bogey in my room as a junior high, high schooler and high schooler. Yeah. And so a lot of those figures in the background in the, in the cityscapes of, of Secret City are male figures. So there, there is a search for a male figure, an identity. Who am I? And uh, a kind of question of what does it mean to have a human body? And halfway through the Secret City work in 1998, a friend of mine suggested that I start photographing women, that, they, that all of the images shouldn't just be male figures, that there's also this other element of feminine and female figures as well. And once I found the right person, her name was Erica, and I ended up photographing her for 15 years. I ended up creating Secret City as a body of work 
that was about a male energy and a female energy coming together and having some kind of union. And then the story that I make up in my own mind and that I leave open for interpretation is about a kind of um, coming together and then going away mm-hmm. at the end, being separate, coming together and separating again. And that theme is uh, a theme that you find in a lot of my work. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because the, you know, some of the work is very sort of stoic. And when you see the images that are more intimate, it seems like it's sort of like a yin and yang. There's a sense of sort of coldness and isolation and solitariness. And then on the on the flip of the coin, you get these images about intimacy, closeness, and like no middle ground between the two. It seems like you flip back and forth between sort of two two extremes to some degree. I mean, it's still sort of exploring the ideas of of being. But have you have you thought in terms of? the contrast that the bodies of works have sort of created? Yeah, I I think of Eros and Thanatos as being two sides of the same coin, right? There's always a presence of death and eroticism running through all of my work. Uh, I think that's part of what attracted me to Michael Kenna's work to begin with, mm-hmm. is that sense of romance and foreboding. Right? There is a sense of romance that draws you in and something that makes you feel like there's a world that you can explore that is safe. But at the same time, it feels kind of cold and designed and a little icy and um, what else? A little scary, a little edgy as well. And there's the sense of what I really appreciate about his work is feeling okay being alone, feeling like when you're alone in those spaces, you are okay and you are safe. And I like to play with that idea in my own work as well. So I would say that would be a middle ground that I would shoot for in between these senses of death and eroticism. That that sense of being okay with being alone, not being lonely, but being okay right. with being alone. Was that something in your early work that you were aspiring to that personally and that, that, you, that you sort of search for as in, in and through your work? Does that make sense? Ibarian X, we are getting to a very deep level here. <laughs> if I were to say that there there are a few life lessons for me, I would say being okay with being alone is a, is a major goal for not only myself but for everybody because ultimately we are alone. We need to learn how to be okay by ourselves and with ourselves. And I would say knowing when to reach out into the world and when to reach within Mm -hmm. is a skill that takes an entire lifetime. There's that. That's a, that's a really big thing. Um, and I would say with my Berlin work, that was a way to find a middle ground in between this 
eroticism and death. I went to a place that for me had the associations of death, but being a cultural center of Europe and of the world, being Berlin, it is also a place of joy and creativity as well. And the history of it has both. And yeah. so partly I was drawn to it because it has everything that I was looking for, a sense of fear, fearlessness, joy, eroticism, death, tragedy. It's all in Berlin. It's so multi-layered. And, and I think also it took me that long to really draw all that out and mix it in with my Jewish experience and find out where that, where that fits in as well. It, it was a five-year-long project. Yeah, about 350 rolls of film. So, yeah, uh, you know, you're 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 picking up on all the major themes in my work that I roll with both personally and in my work. And uh, my next projects also, no surprise, are along the same lines. Yeah, because I was reading um, some some uh, texts that you had written about the work in Berlin. And how there was fear, anxiety associated with, you know, the city's history and, and, and the Holocaust and the personal losses of your family. And those intense feelings can be very difficult to live with if you're not being, even if you're not being creative. But when you are trying to be creative, you have to have to not necessarily, not necessarily resolve those feelings, but be able to coexist with them as you are trying to create. You can't, you can't, you can't suppress them and expect to be able to make something that's, that's true. Do you feel like all the work leading up to that point sort of, a, and, and all in the spiritual practice that you have sort of it allowed you to be present in the midst of all these feelings and to really fully immerse yourself in, in the creation of the, of the photographs? Great question. And I would say that time is our greatest help in finding the core of the narrative of what we're trying to say in our work. So when I was photographing, I try to not um, edit myself. I try to photograph based on instinct, whether it's uh, something that looks joyful and fun or whether it's something that looks sorrowful or is of a particular uh, cultural connection to where I am or if there is a draw to something that seems personal that nobody else is going to understand. Photograph it anyway. And then comes a long process after you do that exploration of writing, editing, showing it to other people who are in the industry that you respect and trying to figure out what did I do? What is the essence of this? Yes, there was a lot of research that was done before uh, I started the project and during the project. But I would say a lot of the feelings got sorted out by editing and by writing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would say that that really helped a lot and, and working with a good editor. Uh, it was helpful to, it was surprisingly super helpful to read Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir 
And that really taught me to honor my own thoughts and feelings and words and write them down for what they are and explore the ideas. And with those words, connect them to the photographs, in my case, and then also work with an editor, in my case, a book designer and a writer, several writers, to see which images and which words come out to be the most powerful and the most cogent and the most true to the core of the project itself. A lot happened in post-production. I photographed based on research and instinct, but then working it all out came a lot through writing and editing. Even though you were writing for yourself, did you find it a challenge to be rigorously honest on the page? Uh, I tend to be too honest. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, uh, you know, I did a lot of... I. I this was a first experience where I did a lot of writing and um, I put a lot in there that ended up to be cut out. Um, and I think my style is a little too demonstrative and I have to pull myself back and still allow the viewer and the reader to have their own experience and not explain things too much. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot gets edited out. Yeah, because it's something I, I think a lot about, especially when I'm looking at um, uh, the work of other photographers, whether they're really long experienced or whether they're starting out. And, and one of the things that always re returns for me over and over again, when I see work that, that moves me, is there's a, there's an, a raw honesty that exists within the photographs in the body of work and explain that. How do you, how do you know, how, what's your sense of knowing that an image is raw and honest for me? It's, it's, I'm one, I think one of it is it's, it's something that I've not seen expressed. It's something I haven't seen before. And I, I it's not really subject matter. It's not really sort of a, a technical approach is that I look at it and there's something both familiar and unfamiliar simultaneously. It's it's like I can't. It's not like a cliched image that you see and you go, "Yeah, I've seen that before." But it's like, "Oh, I've seen this before, but never like this." And when the subject matter is something that's somehow tied to something personal, personal, it's just like I just know it. You know, it's really hard to sort of quantify. It's like when I, I look at a lot of student portfolios, for example. And I'll see the work that they produce in class, and then I'll eventually ask them, well, show me the stuff that you didn't put together for for your fifth term review. Show me the stuff for your Instagram, or show me the stuff that you've been doing on the side. And that stuff is, it has that, it possesses that. And that rawness exists there. There seems something genuine in that work that doesn't exist in their portfolio oftentimes, because they don't see the value of it. And they're, I think part of it is they're not taking that work as seriously. And so it flows out of them much more naturally than the stuff that they think they're supposed to create. Yeah. And I wonder, so, since you've been involved in photography for so long, whether you see that as being a change in how we even interact with photography. 
because photography used to be exclusive to mm-hmm. people who had cameras and film and dark rooms and for people who were obsessed enough to put film in their cameras and take risks right yeah. and now it's no longer i had the the uh photo curator tom simpier mentioned this that photography now is no longer private it's public it's owned by the public it's a mm-hmm. conversation in a way that was never that way before in a way that we don't really own our photographs the way that we used to right it used to be coveted and special and unique that someone was even a photographer and now pretty much everyone is a photographer in their own way we're making yeah. these vernacular pictures all the time and so i wonder if what you're reacting to is a rawness that is due to taking photography off of the pedestal that it used to be on and that it is now part of the people in a way that it was never before rather than a sense of perfection right mm-hmm. yeah. when we would look at you know a western photograph and adams photograph a kenna photograph there's a sense of perfection and a sense of these images these photographs being having come from someone who had a special practice to do it that's yeah right? that's very interesting and that isn't yeah. really true anymore now we're able to break all of these rules and we live in a world where there's no such thing as a bad photograph but maybe what you're maybe what you're reacting to is how honest and raw and real it is because it's it's even more connected to the person who is making that image yeah i because mean the ease with which we make images now is unparalleled right i mean it's just now we're going to start wearing our cameras mm-hmm. right you know that that the next generation of of our mobile devices are going to be these cameras that are part of our jackets and coats and our glasses and we're just going to be photographing all the time that's what that's what's right around the corner yeah so there's an organization called humane mm-hmm. you know about this no okay so humane is a, an organization that's kind of secret and they've plucked something like 60 ex-employees of apple and they're working on their own generation of AI and wearable devices that are no longer devices that you keep in your pocket, but you will, it'll be embedded into your clothing. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was embedded to your skin. And the example that they show is you just ask a question out loud and you hold your hand out and the image and the answer speaks to you and, and gets projected into the palm of your hand. Right. That's right around the corner. And so we're going to be photographing things in a way that I always dreamed of. Like when something is happening in front of you and you say to yourself, I wish I had my camera right now. I wish I photographed that person right now. Like I just dropped my daughter off at the airport and I'm walking out the door and I see a TSA agent in the corner quietly eating a bag of potato chips. (laughs) Right. And if I had a wearable camera and it was connected to my mind, I would just say, snap that photo immediately. Right. Now that's going to become possible. So we're going to have even more photographs of everyday life and these 
special experiences that are not special at all, but tell us a lot about the human condition. And we're going to be seeing these even more. Yeah. And so this special quality or being on a pedestal that we used to associate with photographers and photography is now way off of that pe pedestal and has now been given to everybody. Yeah, but and yeah, I I agree with that. But I think that it's it's the quality or the the, the experience that we had with photographers from 60, 70, 100 years ago, in terms of we would look at these bodies of work and see them as, you know, as you said, perfection. Um, I, I, I think that, that that that's not completely lost because there's there what what's really necessary for those those bodies of work then and now is the editorial and the cura uh, the curatorial process of the photographer is looking at all that work that they have created whether it's you know with a smartphone or with a DSLR or a mirrorless camera or whatever the heck they're they're using is taking all that work and making some sense of it right and saying okay I am now I'm going to take all of this stuff and I am going to refine this so that it has a cohesiveness that you'll never have with a smartphone that has tens of thousands of images on it you know, it's you're just basically scooping up sand and putting it in a bucket, right? Yeah, yeah so you, true. So you true. got a lot of sand, but that doesn't yeah. mean it's anything. Yes. And your work, you know, from the earliest earliest work has always been conceptual. And how important has that been in terms of you being able to to sort of refine your vision as a photographer, what you want to say um, with with the images. And, and how did you come to understand that that had to be an important role for you to do what you needed to do with the camera? Oh, it's a sense of it's a sense of what my values are and what I want to create and what the message is and feeling an urgency to to say something important about my experience of life that might possibly be here after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, one of the things that separates artists from everybody else is this urgent need to do whatever it takes to say something that feels like a, a valuable creative expression about that person's experience of life. And you can't not do it. It's obsessive, right? And so mm -hmm. once I had this idea of how do I photograph a basic human form in life, pre-Photoshop, <laughs> that's all I came up with. And I just mm -hmm. pursued it, right? I just pursued it, whether it was right or wrong or looks bad or not. And I just kept doing it, I think, for about seven years, and came up with 75 photographs and then brought them to a curator. In this case, it was Paul Kopakin in Los Angeles. And he said, yeah, these are good. Let's bring them out to people and see who wants to put them as part of their collection. And we, he mounted nine of them in a grid and it was a powerful exhibition. So yeah, it's, an urgent need that is 
irrational and obsessive. At least it is for me. Because one of the questions I often see is people who have a desire to do that, but then they question, do I have anything interesting to say? And I've been teaching for a long time, and I have this question come up in my mind all the time. And I, I've come down on the side of everybody has something interesting and important to say. And sometimes it takes a lot of sifting through their own concepts of what they think they should be saying mm -hmm. to finding the message that really is the most unique in them. And oftentimes you have to sift through a lot of mental constructs that somehow they came up with that uh, is getting in the way. But everybody has something. Everybody has an important experience of life that is unique. And there are different ways to get there. So as an example, the Berlin work came about because of my own childhood experience. And if you drill back to most people's childhood experiences, there is gold there that can serve as the, 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 the shining uh, beacon to take you to deeper work within yourself. And I also feel like there's this concept that I teach with called the creative spiral, meaning every person has a few themes that they are obsessed about in their lifetime. They think about the first, the, the, a few things again and again and again and again. So for me, it's sort of existentialism, having a body, what are our choices, sex and death all the time, every day. Uh, those are my words, right? Yeah. Now, if I ask my wife what her questions are, they are being a woman, family, and body image all day long, every day, <laughs> right? And you're going to have your own three thing themes that you perseverate over all day, every day. And I think the, the more we pursue those themes creatively, the more we touch on them over and over again, we eventually get to the core of how to express those three themes that are universal to you. So if you're Woody Allen, it's infidelity and Jewishness, right? And inequality of, of sex or gender, right? And the heart wanting what it wants. Right. And every single movie that he puts out every year is all about those three things. Right. And yeah. I think everybody has those, but it takes a while to work with students to figure out what those are. So what do you find when you're working with students that helps them to be able to start tapping into that and not filtering themselves and question second guessing themselves and making photographs that they think they should make as opposed to the images they they themselves need to make. I think it happens by accident. They, they run into making a photograph that just touches on something. And then I ask them to improvise on that. So I'll give you a latest example. I'm teaching a workshop right now for Santa Fe workshops. It's called exploring the secrets of the night. So I have one student who was making general photographs of nighttime scenes and 
we he had exposure issues. He was underexposing his images too much. And I said, I see what you you're doing. You want to make images that are just before black. You can do that, but you need to add a little bit more light into it. And I said, you know what you should do? You should watch the original Superman movie and watch the scene when he feels a calling, when Clark Kent feels a calling to go find the Fortress of Solitude, which he doesn't even know is the Fortress of Solitude yet. He just knows he needs to go north. And when the sun is waking up, he gets on his jacket, he gets in his he gets his knapsack, and he starts out, and he's walking through the wheat fields, and the sun is just coming up. And that whole scene... And when he finally makes it up north and makes it to the fortress, it's all low lighting. But you can just make out this figure in a landscape. So I said, work on this figure in a landscape in low lighting. And then we have someone to sort of uh, pay attention to and be our protagonist. And that's easier for the, for the viewer to get into. Mm-hmm. He did that, and he came across this picture. It's a self-portrait that he did out on a road at night against a barbed wire fence. He set up the camera on a tripod and he photographed himself sitting on the ground up against a post and he looks exhausted. He's nearing 70 and there's a crescent moon in the background. I said, how great is that? Right. He's been photographing. He's tired. He sets up the camera. He presses the shutter He's down on the ground, looking down, and there's a crescent moon above him. And the title of the project is Solitude. I'm like, that's your gold, man. You're reaching 70. What are the things you're thinking about, right? As as the moon is almost waning or waxing, or is it becoming a new moon? You decide, right? And that gives him the sort of gold to not to get out of general photographs of low light and into something more personal and to start doing some writing and research and photographing other people who are turning 70 soon. You know, and I said, are you married? He said, yeah, I'm married. I said, well, then why not get your wife out at midnight and get her in a nightgown and have her explore the backyard in the same kind of setting with that new moon, right? And maybe the dog is out there as well. And this is where you are as you're turning 70. You know, that's, that's how you, you just find something that works in a student's work and have them expand on yeah. it and see where it goes. I so appreciate messages from listeners who share how the candid frame has helped and inspired them. It's great to hear that these conversations have provided the wisdom and the encouragement to pursue their passion for photography. It's one of the reasons why I started and continue to work on this show after 16 years. I'm confident that our archive of over 600 episodes can and does provide you just what you need to hear, whether you're a hobbyist or professional photographer. And if the show has served you in this way, you can support us by providing your financial support on Patreon. You can do this by contributing $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. 
By doing so, you help us to produce a show dedicated to great and insightful conversations about what it means to be a photographer and lead a creative life. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thanks. During COVID, I taught a series of classes where people, because they were relegated to their homes, had to use that sphere as as the material to make their photographs. And it was remarkable um, to see the photographs that were produced as a result. And almost without exception, there would be someone who would make a photograph that went beyond the obvious. They would make a photograph and you would hear an audible reaction from everyone else on the Zoom call to the image. So I wonder whether that was because of the constraints that we were put under. Because sometimes when you have to photograph or be creative under constraints, it actually helps you drill down further into the core of what is going to make the photograph work. Because you don't have all these distractions. You don't have all this possibility. So I wonder if that was part of it. What, no, can you yeah. describe the work? There's, there's this one image that, that sort of stood out for me. The woman had made a photograph. Oh, there's several images. Here's just the one that I'll describe. Um, there was an image of, uh, I think it was a, a husband, who shot um, an image of the unmade bed. And his side of the bed was rumpled up, but the other side was not. For whatever reason, his partner or his wife was it was was not there. But I looked at that image, and it was like it was very telling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was and it was one of those photographs. It was like it's it's a nothing image, right? It's just an unmade bed, but it wasn't. It tells you so much just through that detail. Just through showing a detail. Right. And there was another image that a woman made of her husband. And he was like, uh, just either in the shower, coming out of the shower so that the room was like filled with, you know, from the, 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 the steam from, steam. from, from the shower. But there, w- and there was a vulnerability, a vulnerability because they were both probably in their, late 60s, early 70s, somewhere around there. But there was a tenderness. There was a a vulnerability. There was just, even though there was less detail there, there was something incredibly moving, touching, intimate uh, about it. And those, those images were really remarkable for me. And it opened up the gate for everyone else because it suddenly gave them permission to do it themselves. And by the end of the, uh, each, each class, which I think normally went about eight, eight weeks, you would see incredible transformation for all the photographers because suddenly they weren't, they weren't tethered to this idea of having to make a good photograph, whatever that is. They were making photographs that were really true to who they were and what they were experiencing. And it didn't matter how perfectly composed it was or how well shot it is or any of that stuff that we normally, you know, 
preoccupy ourselves with respect to photography. Yeah. There was that raw, that genuineness that I mentioned earlier that was possessed in those images. And it just, they were images that moved me, which is something that I'm always looking for or images that spark something in me. Yes. That, that even, even though sometimes it may be more of an abstraction than anything else, there's something there that connects with me than the most perfectly crafted photograph that I'll ever see in, on Instagram or on a website. So I wonder about the therapeutic possibilities of photography, mm -hmm. meaning photography used as self-actualization to know med better about yourself and your relationships and to actually use photography to better your own relationships with self and others. I mean, if you can use ecstasy now <laughs> in, in therapeutic purposes, why not photography? I see that again and again. I have one student who's dying of cancer, of brain cancer, and the last photographs that he's taking is he's just photographing his wife. And every single picture that he makes of her is special. It's imbued with a kind of connection, and it doesn't matter what the picture is. Every mm. image he takes of her are the last images that he is taking of her. It's incredibly powerful. So I wonder about this therapeutic possibility of photography itself. And I also am working with a lot of my students about building community with photography. That when you are creating a body of work, build the community of people who are there to help support you and help make that work uh, develop into yeah. something. It's people who are interested in the subject matter that you're photographing and getting them to help you make it. And those will be the people that will also buy your book, go to your exhibition, talk about you and show your work on social media, right? It's about community. I, I find that that community aspect is incredibly powerful now and seems to be where we are going in our communal relationship to photography. It doesn't seem so individual anymore. It seems to be reaching out into communities of people who believe in the subject matter that you're photographing and find it important and want to help you create it. In, in, in the decades that you've been involved with it, is that how you see it sort of being reshaped? Or has it always been like that in, in your experience? It was never like that for me. It was always an individual experience. And in many ways, it still is an individual experience. But I know if I want my work to, to reach a larger number of people, people have to know about it. People have to, there's so much in the world right now that you have to reach out to people and let them know that this is the body of work that you're creating. This is why it's important. I need help with this, that, or the other, and getting that help from the community to make the work happen. And also people want to, uh, support energetically and financially things that they believe in. There's a lot of things that are sort of forced down our throats these days that we don't want mm -hmm. 
right? Tech yeah. is one of them. We're, we're constantly being asked to do more technical things, and we spend more and more time in front of our computers. And so, for instance, if you are creating a body of work about the experience of widowhood, let's say, then all those people who have experienced that, who are feeling that, will help support your project. And they want to know about it. And they want to know that you are expressing something visually and beautifully that is akin to what they're expressing. And those are going to be the people that are going to help you with community, with exhibitions, with finances, with connections, with interviews, and who will buy your book and bring you to their community organizations to talk about that experience. I find that that's a really good way to, to steer students, you know, uh, starting with their own personal experience, but then reaching out to the rest of the world. So how are you doing that in, in your own career with your own work? What are the different, you know, resources that you're using it and, and talk about, you know, that the time involved in, in making all that happen. Uh, casting a wide net, <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning, you know, so for instance, I'm going to have my Berlin exhibition now at Holocaust museum, Houston. Right. And I'm letting everybody know that there is going to be a book signing, an exhibition of 27 prints and a, a, uh, a slide presentation. So they have their own PR people. I have my own PR person and I also have one employee. And so what we did last week was make a list of, of all of the synagogues in Houston and invite them all to the book signing, invite them all to the exhibition. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you invite enough of them, a few of them will come. <laughs> so basic things like that. Right. Um, so a, a lot of lists, depending on where you are regionally, but also what the subject matter is and uh, finding those groups of people that are interested in what you're exploring, because not everybody is going to explore to the depth that you are. And what I try to do in my own work and what, what I do in teaching students is become an expert as much as I can of my own subject matter. Yeah. You know, and let people know that I've been studying this. I'm curious about this subject matter and I studied it and here it is. So help support me. You know, know let's show it. Let's look at it. Let's talk about it. Let's read it. I know you're a big fan of jazz. Um, Major. So what is it about that genre of music that, has such an impact on you and how do you think it has influenced what you do with the camera? Oh, just brilliant improvisation. Having an idea of what you want, knowing what the head of a tune is, having lots of space to stretch out and interpret that theme as much as you can and stretch it like taffy. Mm -hmm. And then be very judicious about the notes that you play and then come out with the main theme again and exit and do it in a sweet way. Right? Yeah. 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 So I wouldn't say I'm Miles Davis. I don't do it in a sparing kind of way, 
and I'm not, um, I'm not bird. I'm not using a ton of notes. I'm trying to find my own way to do it. It's partly mental. It's partly emotional. It's partly erotic. It's got a lot of these other things in it. So I'm trying to mix together, you know, some Coltrane, some Paul Desmond, some, uh, you know, Benny Golson in there. I don't know. There's so many people. Yeah. Uh, and, and lately I'm also trying to find the, the stretches, the, the joy and also the darkness. Right. So I'm trying to reach as low as, as, uh, as Mingus did or, or Coltrane and also have some dizzy in there as well. And so, um, and when I photograph people, I have the same kind of approach. I tell them what the general theme is. Mm-hmm. I meet them. I photograph them according to the images that I see in my head. I improvise. I collaborate with them. And then there's sort of an arc to the energy of the photo session. And then we both agree that it's coming to a close and I exit. Maybe take a few last photographs of the theme I originally had in my head. And then that's it. There's sort of like a, a, a crest and fall of a good tune and a good photo session. Can you give me an example of a, of a shoot and give me and sort of flesh that out a little more? Yeah. So one that really comes to mind is this woman who answered a Craigslist ad. And I told her that I was working with photographing issues of uh, related to Jung's idea of animus and anima that inside of each of us there is a a masculine and feminine presence an activity and i told her that's really what i wanted to photograph i barely spoke to her at all she invited me to her home and uh we ended up doing portraits of her and then we went into some very she had a very romanesque nose and I tried to take advantage of that kind of strength that she was showing in her face. And full body images of her standing as if she's holding a spear. And also photographs of her being what looked like space itself. Open arms, open legs, being horizontal as opposed to being vertical. And then we decide, I said, what do you want to do now? What would you normally do in this circumstance at 10 in the morning? And she said, I would take a shower. So I photographed her taking a shower and getting water all over her body and then drying off and then reading a book. And to me, coming back to that idea of literature and reading and doing something private and being kind of a fly on the wall it was a perfect place to end. Hmm. So we just ended there. I think that was about five or six rolls of film. And we covered the whole territory and improvised. That's wonderful. Yeah. 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 That, that, that whole spirit of, of, of spontaneity rather than being some sort of formal rigid structure that it just allows something natural to sort of reveal itself. Cause I think that's really, for me, that's 
my experience as a photographer is, is I, I want to set the stage for something that be revealed to me rather than me sort of going in there with some intention of saying, okay, I'm going to create this exact thing that I imagined. Because, yes, I can do that, but I'm not going to surprise myself. And I, I like, you know, going in there with the intention of doing something, but I want to be, I want to surprise myself somehow. And I've learned how that. Do you, how do you describe your frame of mind or or sense of openness to allow for those elements to come in beyond your control. Because when that magic happens, when something happens for our lenses, we know it's happening. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And how do you, what, how would you describe your frame of mind where you uh, allow that to happen? So for instance, I tell my students to not, not, not be too in, in control of what they have in their camera bags. Not have everything they absolutely need, but have some experience of some chance in there that maybe some things will go wrong. Maybe you won't be so prepared. Yeah. Right? And maybe something will happen for you that you didn't expect because you're not focused on control. So how do you describe that own feeling of being open to various uh, spontaneous things that happen. Well, as, as you just said, I keep things very simple. I'm working with one camera, one lens. Could be a 35, it could be a 50, it could be, you know, 24, whatever I decide to take out, out that day. And then as soon as I, as I arrive wherever I am going to make photographs, um, within two minutes, I'm making a photograph. And I'm like, I just need to start the, the have the physical experience of making the images and not waiting for something good to show up for me I have to I have to jump into the pool immediately and that sort of gets that starts priming the wheels and as I sort of move around I'm constantly sort of observing and taking things in and if I'm inclined to raise the camera, I don't edit myself. I don't take a picture and then look at uh, on the screen and and make a judgment of it. Of it, I go if I'm if I'm in if I'm being drawn to the scene, I'll make photographs. And even if I don't understand how to make a good photograph from the scene, it doesn't matter. I sort of just trust. I reinforce the idea that if I'm drawn to it, I make photographs of it. And that if there is something special about it, you know, I'll see it later when I get home. But for me, when I'm on the street, which is where the majority of the time that I'm making photographs, it's just reinforcing the idea of trusting the process and now not self-editing. I'm going to guess that nine times out of ten, the best photographs from that session are the ones that you that you didn't even acknowledge at the time. Oh yeah, you made them, yeah. right? They're but they're not the images that you said. Oh, this is a good one, or this is what I came here for, right? When you open up that that folder three months later, you have totally different eyes that you're viewing it, and and the ones that are calling to you are totally different than the ones that you had in your mind when you were there. Yeah. 
Yeah, because their, their image, the image when I make it, go, oh, yeah, they were, they were well composed. The light was good. But so why is that? It. That's my question. Why is that? That's an eternal question. Why, what does time have to do with helping you pick out the images that have a longer shelf life, a longer lasting impression on you and those are the ones that you want to keep looking at why does three or six months later give you a better chance to view those images for what they are well i just went through slides that i shot 40 years ago and discovered some gems there which i completely overlooked 40 years ago on kodachrome yeah Um, and i think what it i think what it is is that there is a part of me that is not conscious but is aware of something there and that my conscious mind is is present enough to sort of recognize some elements of it enough that I raise the camera to my eye and make and make the photographs but that there's another part of me that is sensing that there's something more here and that in combination with my conscious mind allows me to sort of make the photographs. And then later on, I discovered that I made a photograph that was far better than what I had thought when I pressed the shutter release button. And that that distance of time allows me to be less concerned with whatever I was prioritizing at that moment. Say it was the light or the, or that person, that red jacket. Oh, that's cool. But that all the pieces, the amalgam of all those things that were present in that moment, I pressed the shutter release button, that my collective whole, you know, was present and yeah. was able to recognize it. And, and if I wasn't, and if I didn't, and if I didn't get in my way, yeah, that I get to make the, I get to make the photograph. So for me, a good photo day is not so much the images I produce, but whether or not I was able to get into that space. Cause I'm, I know that I'm more than likely going to come away with something that I'm ultimately happy with if I was in that headspace, regardless of whether I think I had, I made a killer shot that day or not. For me, it's the mindset. It's like, I want, for me, I just want to be in that in that space for that hour or two hours that I'm on the street for. And if and let if me I'm, let me ask you a question, and that is a kind of a callback to one of your previous questions, which is: Does time and emotional detachment mm-hmm. and letting go of concepts, letting go of conceptual attachment, is that? Are those tremendous tools for helping you figure out which images are the best from your moment of openness? That you actually need a kind of separation, emotional detachment, a coolness and distance in order to take you up away from what you were feeling on that day into another kind of space. Yes. Need it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Too. Yeah, because I'm going through it, all, all my whole digital archive going back to '92, so I'm starting to go through these things. So I don't have that strong emotion that I may may have had when I made the pictures. 
That's right. Now I'm looking at them in terms of relationship to each other. What do these images reveal to me when they're juxtaposed opposite each other? And you you've know? changed. And I've changed. So yeah, yeah. So um, so that's it. But it's it's. I'm re-experiencing the images as a result of going through that process. It's like discovering them all over again, so, which is fascinating. These are From images. a different perspective. Oh, yeah. 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 And, 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 and discovering something new about the photographs themselves. That when I bring two images together that were made decades apart, and all of a sudden there's something about them that's sort of resonating between the two, it's like I discovered the scene with completely fresh eyes or re-experienced it in a way that I didn't when I made the picture. And, yeah. and I, and I, and I kind of love that. Um, I don't know what's going to come of it, but I know that if I had not been in that headspace, when I made the photographs, I wouldn't be experiencing what I'm experiencing now. Yeah. Yeah. And then are you also combining with writing about the images, writing about the project. The not, yet. You, not yet. Not uh, yet. I'm gonna do it. I'll do a lot of journaling as yeah. just a matter of, a matter of course. But um, yeah, I haven't gotten to actually writing about this process of putting these images together. What I find fascinating is the relationship between words and pictures, because. I found that once I started to write about, say, my Berlin project, mm -hmm. it made me think differently about the pictures themselves. I was enlightened about the, the, the pictures that I made, let's say, five years earlier, just by writing about them. I saw them differently. And that, um, that was very powerful. That made me add in images and take out images based on what I was writing about. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, it helped the edit process. Yeah. And then, of course, when someone else writes about your work, when they write an essay about it, they can bring up things that also make you think of images that were not in the body of work that maybe should go back in because the person writing about them brought up that issue. Yeah. That happened with the Berlin work several times. That's great. That's yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this. And, um, Oh, me too. We could go on forever. Yeah. My last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh boy. I mean, I, I'm, I'll give you two. The photographer I'm always reaching back to is Roy DeCarava. Oh, always going yes. back to Roy DeCarava's work. Mm -hmm. That sense of intimacy and embeddedness and being in that twilight space, in a quiet space that is not pretentious, but tells us about the interiority of the person that he's photographing or the space itself. There's a kind of quietness stillness that is not depressing it's somehow uplifting mm -hmm. it's uplifting right it's i admire that about 
uh, people who photograph in that way, because there is an awful lot of sort of a look at photography now being a kind of expression of downtroddenness. Yeah. And I never experienced that in photography. For me, it's always uplifting. And so it, Roy Decarava photographing the Harlem experience and in such a special, beautiful way. I, it's so hard to describe. It's so important for, for culture and for the, the expression of the medium itself. And lately I've been really enjoying what Bree Souders is doing. So Bree Souders is a, she's based in Brooklyn and she is, I wouldn't say she's a cutting edge or, or pioneering photographer, but she is um, angular in the way that she's looking at photographs, hmm. looking at them in an unusual way. Her latest book is called Another Online Pervert, and it is, <laughs> it's great. And it is a conversation, a three-year-long conversation with a personality chatbot. Oh, oh and wow. Great. And this was before, she started doing this before all of this talk about AI now. So reading the conversation, it's published by MacBooks, between her and this chatbot, and looking at the photographs that from her archive that she's chosen to express those ideas is really an enlightening uh uh, experience. So I, am, I, I enjoy everything she does. That sounds awesome. I am definitely going to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jason, so that's what I got for you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. It was great fun. It really was. And uh, happy to come back anytime. And thanks for doing such a great podcast. It's such a, such a gift for everybody who's interested in photography because the wide range and the depth of conversation that you always give is um, is just such a great use of all of our time. Oh, thank you, man. You got it. Thanks to Jason for joining us. Learn more about Jason and his work by visiting jasonlanger.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social network, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Boris, Rob Feekins, Mark Silverberg, and Kyle S. for their recent contributions. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.